Hello and welcome to School Psych Podcast. Uh, tonight we're very excited to have Dr. Matt Burns back with us. He did a previous episode with us about his article in the Communique and teased us a little bit with his knowledge of uh, curriculum-based assessments and so we asked him to come back and elaborate a little bit and um, give us some more information so we're really excited tonight. Um, first off, my name is Rachel and I'm a school psychologist. I'm working in the state of Maryland. Rebecca? Hi, I'm Rebecca. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Connecticut. We really want to hear from you guys um, tonight, so please uh, post your questions and comments on either of our Facebook pages, School Psych to Your School Psychologist, or the School Psych Podcast page. I'm looking for the little notification, so really anywhere you post, I will be able to find you. Or, um, or just tweet out on Twitter using the hashtag PsychedPodcast. And now here's Anna. Hi, I'm Anna, the school psych working in New York State. Um, we had a little poll on our Facebook page to find out from our viewers and fellow school psychs out there how they're involved with uh, CBA, CBM action. So um, we asked you guys, um, how do you use curriculum-based assessments or standardized achievement assessments for designing reading or math interventions? So I hope you guys can see this on the screen. This is the results of our poll. Um, it was a tie for first place. 14 people used the KTEA3 or the WJ achievement. 12 people used Ames Web. Um, 11 people used Dibbles. Uh, 11 used the Wyatt. 8 used other CBM tests like spelling or minute math tests. 7 used the Key Math 3. 6 used phonics inventories. 5 used the maps. Um, 5 people have someone else in their building who's in charge of achievement testing altogether. Um, 4 people use the test of oral reading like gray oral reading test. Um, Four people do very little curriculum-based assessments in their positions, and three people use other types of common core assessments. So that was pretty, pretty cool, and um, I want to introduce Dr. Matt Burns. Um, Matt Burns is a professor of, associate dean for research and professor of school psychology at the University of Missouri. He's the former editor of School Psychology Review and Assessment for Effective Intervention and has published extensively about using data that, to identify appropriate reading and math interventions for struggling students. When um, you say he wrote the book on, on CBAs, he wrote a lot of books. <laughs> so thank you so much, Dr. Burns, for joining us. Great. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm really excited to, to be here. I was talking before we started how, how much I like this podcast and I think it's so great that you guys do this. I'm really glad there are people out there who take advantage of it and watch it and listen to it. Because uh, I think this is an outstanding resource. So thank you guys for doing this, and thank you for inviting me back again. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm going to talk today about curriculum-based assessment. Now, I'm going to um, kind of explain things. I have some data I want to show. Uh, and then, of course, I have lots of time for, for conversation. And I'll, I'll keep an eye on the chat. And if questions come up, I'll, I'll be sure to stop and address them. Um, I really like that poll that you guys did. So if I could comment on that, uh, folks will hear me speak and think I, I am anti-achievement tests, and that's not true. Achievement tests serve a very important function, I would argue. In fact, when I work with a response to intervention model, and we use monitoring data, the data you know, that monitors student progress, and that's our primary decision-making data. But if we have really good implementation data says we did this intervention really well and the kid wasn't making progress, and we're considering an LD identification, I advocate for giving at that point, yes, look at the data we have, but then also doing a, a KTEA or a Wyatt or um, the Woodcock-Johnson Achievement Battery and having some sort of criterion at which the kids should score below to be identified as LD. 
Um, I, I think I've said before, I don't know if I've said this to you guys or not, but if you've heard me speak about this, you've heard me say this. I contend that um, what I always say is RTI is the worst way to diagnose a kid as LD, except every other way. Mm -hmm. LD still has to mean something. And, and I argue that the reason LD is, that the, problem, the main problem with LD is we haven't really defined it very well yet. Even when we've been looking at this for 40 years, we still don't really know what it is. And so I would argue that I, I want to see some sort of national data, nationally normed data that say, yes, this kid is struggling. Um, he or she is struggling relatively to his or her local peers, et cetera, but compared to a national group, I'd like to see some data that say this kid is below where we'd expect them to be. Uh, so I, I think the KTA, Wyatt, Woodcock-Johnson Achievement Battery, those all work really well. The key math and those phonics inventories are different. Those, I think, are actually decent diagnostic tools. And I'm using the term diagnostically differently. I'm using the term diagnostically in the, term, in the way I'm about to use it right now for the rest of, the, of this conversation. Um, those are really good. I use phonics screeners, phonics measures all the time. I would never use that to put a kid in special ed, for example. But if a kid comes to me as a struggling reader and I want to know what's going on, I'll get out a, a phonics measure. By the way, sometimes that phonics measure is, is, a, is an informal screener like Scholastic has one and others. But it might also be the Woodcock-Johnson word attack subtest, for example. Uh, sometimes those are really useful data when trying to decide what we need to do to help kids. What I want to talk about today is not monitoring progress, but to use data diagnostically ahead of time to determine what intervention the kid probably needs. So I want to talk first about briefly about school psychology. Um, I was on this podcast before talking about the use of cognitive assessment data. And I'm critical of those using those data for intervention design. I'll remind you of data about that in just a second. I'm also fairly critical of school psychs who spend a lot of time engaged in one-on-one -on -one individual counseling. And the reason I'm critical of those two are for the same reasons. Inconsistent or non-conclusive data to support the effects. But, but the bigger issue, even if, even if that weren't the case, the bigger issue for me is the problem with those is that we assume the problem rests with the individual kid, the medical model. For 50 years, school psychology has really relied heavily on what we call the medical model. Terry Gutkin writes about this beautifully, so, so just Google uh, anything by Terry Gutkin for, for information on this. But what he basically says is we have a, I'll use the term pandemic, we have a, a mental health pandemic in the schools. I'm, I'm, these are not, I'm, I learned of these from him, but the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, that um, the uh, Surgeon General report in 1999 concluded that one in five kids, children and adolescents, have the signs and symptoms of a DSM disorder, enough to be classified by the DSM. So 20% of the kids. One in 10 kids, children and adolescents, have mental illness severe enough to result in significant functional impairment. It's a pandemic. The, the however, the issue is not to work with each of these individual kid because a it's too much, it's too many, it's you know 20 percent. I mean that's just an unrealistic service. Uh, 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 it'd be unrealistic to do that. But secondly, it's probably more effective to look at it from an ecological perspective. So if I, there's two ways I look at the ecological perspective. One is a systems perspective. So I want to change the system so that we're more preventative in our approach. 
Okay, that's one way, and that's RTI, that's PBIS. We get that. But the other way I want to be more ecological is for an individual kid. If a kid is struggling, I will come in and look at the environment in which the kid is functioning, and I'm going to assume that the deficit, the problem we're seeing, is the breakdown in, in, in the interaction between the child and the system in which he operates. And the best example, which I probably stole this from Terry, is uh, you know you might do a really intense, I don't remember for sure, but I, I think I did. Um, you might do a really intensive one-on-one -on -one intervention with a kid. It might be individual counseling, whatever, it doesn't matter. And you do it for three weeks, and at the, at the end of that, he's still going back to his teacher who doesn't know how to handle it. You know, if the system lies with a teacher who escalates the kid as soon as he walks in the room, then most of the individual counseling you do with the kid isn't going to be effective. If the child is, if I may work with this kid and say he has a cognitive processing dis disorder and I, I take steps to remediate that, he's still going to get the same type of instruction. So I want to look at it from an ecological perspective. And part of the reason I did, as I said before, is the lack of effectiveness. So. Um, I, don't, I won't show these data. They're in the, there's a PowerPoint. Um, Rachel, where's that? In the Google Drive? Yes, um, I put it in the Google Drive in our RTI slash uh, CBM folder, so um, under presentations. Great, thank you. So it's there, so please feel free to, to look at it there and um, use it however you'd like. But we did our, our, our analysis of seven meta-analysis, and we found, remembering, remembering an, an average effect size, you know, a, a good effect size is 0.8. This is oversimplified, but for conversation, it's fine. And 0.2 or lower is considered weak, and you know, 0.4 is moderate. We found average effect sizes for working memory interventions of 0.11, which is just, mm -hmm. I mean, really low. Um, we found nonverbal reasoning of 0.24. Most, we found 69 studies totally, total looked at measures of IQ or cognitive processing to de develop academic interventions and resulted in average effect size of 0.17. It's just the research do not support using those types of data for this. Um, and if I if I could have just one goal out of this entire my work in, in looking at the meta analyses is if, if I could just persuade school psychologists to give up on working memory interventions, I'd be so happy because um, that's probably the one for which there's the most clear data that say, you know, working memory interventions just don't do anything to improve reading or math. And working memory researchers, David Hume and another person whose name I can't pronounce. Uh, it's spelled like M-E-R-V-A-G, but, but it's not pronounced that easily. Uh, M-E-L, sorry, V-A-G. Um, concluded there's no data to support working memory interventions generalized to reading or math, period. Um, so I push to think of it more systematically and more systemically because it can take a prevention approach and prevent difficulties and because it's a more effective way to help individual kids experiencing significant difficulties. So let me show you what it looks like. I'm going to try and switch this. So I'm going to do a screen share. And share this. Okay. Do you see? Oscar, do you see a graph right now? Yes. So this is a little guy who's in third grade. Who they were doing repeated reading with him. What they're doing is they're monitoring progress in oral reading fluency, and they're assessing his progress once a week, and they're doing repeated reading. The, what's hard to see there, I'm sorry, is the, the dark lines, the, the filled in circles. Right, I'm going to stop you right there. I think um, you might be in full screen and then it doesn't. Oh. Uh, I'm seeing the first page. There we go. Um, you might have to just scroll through that way because um, Google doesn't seem to let us do full screen PowerPoint. Okay. Do you see it? Do you see it now? Yeah, I see your cursor moving now. I see medical model. Okay, so let me, let me do this. That was 
my notes to myself. I was just reading off. So mm -hmm. let me. Um, right, uh, Rebecca, Anna, where is that? What? Okay. Yeah, with the medical model, you're right. Okay, there. How about okay. now? Uh, yes, now yeah, we see. Okay, okay. Thanks for for telling. Okay. So these data right here are the words read correctly per minute. So over the course of several weeks, they were doing repeated reading with this little guy, and you can see it wasn't working very well. And this is hard to see, but this is accuracy. This is percent of words the kid read correctly. So you look at these data, and you can see the kid is basically anything, anything going down. Repeated reading is not working. So they called me and they said, what do we do for this kid? Now, certainly one option would have been to come in, do some cognitive assessments, et cetera, to see what the kid needs. But instead, um, I did a, a, an ecological assessment. So I won't, I won't show it, but oh, maybe I will. It's, I have to tell you guys, as a professor, I don't, I don't have family meetings without PowerPoints anymore. So this is really <laughs> hard for me to not have PowerPoints. So let me do, oops, go away. This is from Ed Shapiro, um, unfortunately, one of my professional heroes who unfortunately recently passed away. Um, but you can see here, Ed talks about using different types of data to determine what an assessment intervention model. So we first assess the academic environment, assess instructional placement, modifications, and then monitor progress. Most school psychologists are very you know, well informed on CBM, curriculum-based measurement ways to monitor progress. But they don't have as much background on these. And this is where I think as school psychologists we could be extremely helpful. Because teachers want to know when they come to me, they want to know what to do. They don't want to, you know, we can tell them what they're doing is or isn't working and that's of course important, but they want to know what to do. And so I'll look at different types of data to try and decide what to do. And so I look at the diagnostic data. And the research that Oh, I can't show it to you right now. That's okay. Um, the research that I do focuses on curriculum-based assessment for instructional design. Curriculum-based assessment for instructional design was is a term coined, well, actually, the term was coined by Alan Cole. Oops. We lost Dr. Burns for a second. Oh, no. Oh, there she is. Matt, you're frozen. If you can hear us, just pop out and come back. <laughs> but um, I do think that, you know, what he was saying about teachers wanting to know what to do. I totally get that because sometimes, oftentimes, I feel like I assess a kid and then um, at the end of it I don't have, nothing changes. Like I don't have any, I don't have a magic fix and I want to have something. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Can you see me? Am I back? Okay, good. Sorry about that. So we have bad internet at this university so if I crash I'll just come back in real quickly. I'm sorry. Um, so as I was saying, we're looking at using data for diagnostic purposes, and I'm using the term diagnostic meaning to try and find out what the strengths and difficulties are for a particular student to see what they need. Uh, and so I use curriculum-based assessment for instructional design, which was developed by Ed Gicklin, a model that Ed developed in the 70s, um, and he's done quite a bit of research with, and I've, I've done research with it over the past 20 years. Um, and it's a way to sit down with kids and look at their individual reading and math skills to see what they need. Now, in the next half hour or so, I'm, I'm not going to have time to really do justice to talk about it, so I want to kind of give you the idea of it. I put in the PowerPoint that's online um, the procedures for assessing it reading, for reading and math. I also put in there a video. 
uh, in my not there. I'm sorry, on my YouTube channel. Uh, so I have a YouTube channel. I think it's just Matt Burns. I'm not, I'm not sure what it is, but if you search YouTube, uh, you, you'll find it. And I can try and link it to your um, Rachel to your page. You have the page, right, Rachel? Yeah, the yeah, and uh, Rebecca's really good too. About uh, she'll probably have it linked before the end of the broadcast. <laughs> great, <laughs> that'd be great. Um, but I put some videos in there of people demonstrating how to do it. Uh, with it's, I have some with kids. Just to be safe, I did the one with my doc students doing role playing it, so that's okay. Um, so uh, that'll be online. You can, there's a video there. So I'm not gonna spend time really talking about how to do this as much as talking about what it is and how to use the data. Okay. So I want to show you the data from my all-time favorite study. Now I think I'm gonna have to do. I can't show it. Like I usually do, so I'm going to do it this way. It'll be a little less dramatic, but that's okay. <laughs> okay. So you see a graph there with, with four phases, baseline, frustration? Yes. So Ed Gickling in 1978 looked, observed some kids who were LD in, in reading and simply observed them during reading instruction. What he saw was that they were they were understood, they comprehended about 20% of what they read. That's this line here. They completed about 65% of what of their work, and they were on task about half the time. He then, oh, for time's sake, kind of jumped to the point more quickly. He used material in which the kids could read 85% of the words, and there were a few slight changes, nothing really exciting. But then he used material, still age-appropriate, in which the kids could read 93 to 97% of the words. And what he saw was comprehension went really high. Well, that makes sense because you can't comprehend it if you can't read it. So now the kids can read it. That's great. Task completion was high, which that makes sense too, but look at time on task. Over well, around 90%. But then they did something brilliant. They used material, again, still age appropriate, in which kids could read 100% of the words. And their completion and comprehension was high, but time on task fell back down to where it was before. And they concluded, you know, here it was too hard. The task was too hard. They were, the kids were frustrated. Here the task was boring. It was too easy. The kids, were, the kids were bored. So they found what they operationally, what they defined as um, this instructional level. And the term instructional level is used all the time in schools. Probably everyone who's watching this has heard that term used. And I think it is um, one of the most misused terms. Uh, instructional level, the term came from... Um, Betts in 1946 was observing kids while reading and he said, you know, kids can read better if they read about 95% of the words correctly. And that was it. It was anecdotal observation. So Gickling did research on that to really try and look at it and see what, what works here and he found, and I have replicated this multiple times, I've tested different approaches, we consistently find for reading, the kids need to be able to read 93 to 97% of the words. That is what Gickling first called curriculum-based assessment. You come in, sit down with a kid, have them read to you for a minute, record the number of words read and the number of, the number of errors and compute a percentage. If the kid reads 94% of the words correctly, great. If they read 88%, the material is too hard. If they read 100%, the material might be too easy. Um, but certainly if they're reading less than, eight, less than 93%, it's, it's probably too hard. So in practice, I sit down with a kid, 
and I'll use the reading material. So if they're doing a, ta a, a, um, a basil, I'll sit down and have them read to me three times, just like CBM. And, and one thing I love to show is I'll show a video of a CBA ID uh, assessment, and I'll ask people, does this look like anything? And they'll say, yes, oh my gosh, it looks just like a CBM. It is, but it's fundamentally different. It's fundamentally different because I don't use probes. I use the actual reading material that the kids are going to use in class. So there might be pictures in there. There might be whatever. Um, I also look at the accuracy. That's my primary variable. So I want to compute percentage of words read correctly, whereas in CBM, of course, it's, it's number of words read correctly. So I'll sit down with the kid, have them read their basil for a minute. I'll do it three times. Get the median. They'll use median. That still works. Is 93%? Is it 93 to 97%? If not, we may have to use different material or do a different type of intervention, which I'll talk about in just a second. Um, for math, it's a little bit differently. For time's sake, I won't really talk about that. It functionally looks very much the same, except in math, it's very much um, single-skill probes. So if they're working on single-digit multiplication, I'll get a, a, a probe that I might develop or take from the curriculum that's just single-digit multiplication. If it's double-digit addition with regrouping, you know, that kind of thing. So it's a single-skill measure, but we tend to look at the criteria a little differently. Again, for time's sake, I won't explain it too much. It's, it's in that, in that um, PowerPoint. But now we do look at digits correct per minute, but we develop different instructional level criteria based on research. So in there, if a child in first through third grade is below 14 digits correct per minute, then that skill does not represent an instructional level. If I give him a single skill multiplication probe, he gets 10 digits correct per minute. So you might give him two or three minutes to do it, but per minute it's less than 14, then that skill is not where he's at. For fourth grade and above, it's 24 digits correct per minute. So if the kid, you know, in fifth grade, give him double digit, or, you know, uh, double digit times single digit multiplication, give him two minutes to work on it. At the end of it, he got 18 digits correct per minute, so 36 total digits correct. That's probably a too difficult of a skill, and we would do something different. So, so CBA is different than CBM. We use the data to decide what to do to help the kid, but CBM is used to measure is, is what you're doing working. So they're, very, they're fundamentally different. Now, the term, I should, I'll say this briefly, the term CBA has evolved to become this kind of general idea of any assessment that involves the curriculum is a curriculum-based assessment. So that's why I've taken using the, the term that Alan Coulter developed, probably in the 80s, that was, um, that was called curriculum-based assessment for instructional design. Doing these quick little interventions, these quick little uh, assessments for up to three to five minutes, that's it. I get a pretty good indication of what a kid needs. I'm going to show you an example. So, I have to jump ahead here. Mm -hmm. um, for time's sake, so I've done a lot of studies with, with the psychometrics of it. The data are in there. Uh, we've published them, you know, but generally speaking, the reliability, no matter how we look at it, is about, is at least 0.85 or higher. We generally, we see oftentimes reliability is above 0.9, so the data are sufficiently reliable for making individual um, decisions. Let me see. About uh, instructional decisions. And so um, when you're given these things, um, 
is it? I'm, I'm guessing you're targeting it, targeting it based on kind of the referral concern and where. Um, I mean, do you have like a blanket like battery of CBAs that you give to just get some general information? Are you picking and choosing kind of based on? It's the referral question. So the kid, the teacher says to me, this kid referred to me for reading. The first thing I do is sit down, and take his reading material for his class. If it's a basal or if he's doing leveled reading, I'll, I'll use those books, whatever they use for reading instruction, and see can the kid read it. That's the first thing I do. Um, and from that, I might do additional assessments, looking at decoding skills, etc. But yeah, it's the referral question. Uh, and, and by the way, a quick little tip for school sites, which I'll start, I'll talk about now and, and come back to in a minute, is. Um, if you're, you'd say you're in a, uh, doing an evaluation and you uh, are doing an eva you know, a eligibility evaluation and referrals for reading, as you honestly take three minutes, sit down with the kid in their reading base or whatever they use and do this quick little CBA ID and report that in your report. So you read 88% of the words correctly, 85% of the words correctly, the criteria is 93 to 97%. This suggests this, it, this material might be too difficult for them. And then I'll come back to interventions for that in just a second. But practitioners, you're not, you know, you want you think about moving in this direction. What do you do? Here's a really quick kind of tip you can do. That's just part of your evaluation process. Just have the kid read you for three minutes. Literally, it takes less than five minutes, and, and you can get some pretty good data to share with the teacher that teachers find usually quite quite helpful. Yeah. So it's a referral question. Sit down with the kid. If it's a reading problem. Have him read to you from his grade level from his grade level teaching uh, materials. So let me try and share the screen. This is this could be my favorite study I ever did. This was in 2007, so it's gosh, almost 10 years ago. We took a group of kids. Uh, we took 60 kids identified as LD in reading in the state of Michigan, and they were from 30 different classrooms. So two kids per classroom, and they were really close. So we randomly assigned. So two kids per classroom. One got the treatment. One got control. Okay, the treatment was, well, the control was, now I'll talk about treatment first. The treatment was this. We sat down with the kid, took their instructional materials, and they always were less than 93% correct, basically. So we would simply pre-teach. All we did was teach the kids some of the key words so they could read 93 to 97% of the words. Okay? The control group, we did a one-on-one -on -one guided reading lesson, which means we sat down with the kid, asked them, Questions to read for as they read, talk to them about it. Typical guided reading approach. They were they're both one on one, both the same amount of time, about 20 minutes a day, um, and in baseline they were equal because we we did that on purpose. We randomly assigned so 41 roughly 41 42 words per minute. We ran ran this intervention three times a week. Came in simply pre-taught so they could read the words, they could read the passage, or did guided reading. These were all kids identified as LD and reading in third grade. At the end of the intervention period, the kids were reading 47 words per minute in the control group, so up slightly, but they went up to 65 words per minute here. And that's a significant difference in large effect. But more importantly, we computed the slope of growth. The control group was going up by 0.42 words correct per minute per week. The treatment group, the simple 15-20 minute intervention a day, they were, these kids identify as LD and reading were going up 1.81 words per minute per week. Uh, and we looked at the average rate of growth for the, the third grade, and it was below that, which means if we were using an RTI model to identify kids as LD, two-thirds of the kids, you don't know this from this data, I'm telling you this, 
two-thirds of the kids for whom we did this intervention would not have been identified as LD. Mm -hmm. We would have effectively prevented or, or remediated the reading difficulty with a 20-minute intervention a day, simply pre-teaching words. So we didn't teach the kids anything. The teachers taught them. The teachers taught them how to read. All we did was get them ready for reading instruction. Um, we also correlated the number of times that a kid actually read at an instructional level in growth, and the correlation was 0.8, which of course in the real world almost never happens. So you can see that it, it was a really powerful intervention. I'm going to show you one more quick data set here. Let me just show you this kid. This one's the most fun one. There's a couple examples on here, but I'm only going to show you one for time's sake. While you're looking for it, Matt, can I just ask, in that 20-minute intervention while you, where you were teaching the words, was there some kind of special method that the teachers used to, to pre-teach the word? Because There is, yes. There wasn't. I mean, no, but yes. There was for the study because I wanted it to be standardized. Okay. We did, we did incremental rehearsal. Mm -hmm. um, again, for time's sake, I won't explain it, but there's lots of videos on incremental rehearsal. It's, a, it's an intervention for which I've done, I don't even know, maybe 20 studies on now. It's really well documented as a really effective intervention. So if you Google it, uh, and even if you Google it, you'll you'll find some videos on YouTube of how to implement it, uh, and it's it's very easy to do. So but so yes, we did that because I wanted to standardize the intervention. But arguably no, you know any any approach that you used it to sort of pre-teach is is probably going to be okay, probably depending on what you do. But. So, yeah, incremental rehearsal is what I use. It's one I would recommend. It's one I use a lot of research on. I think it's really effective. But it doesn't mean it's the only one that you can use. It's just the one that I use during my, my research. Interesting. So this is little Michael. Um, Michael actually, no, is this Michael? Yeah, this is Michael. Um, he was referred to us. I might have the wrong one up. Shoot, that's okay. Michael was a, a diagnosed with a, a emotional behavioral disorder um, in elementary school, not medicated, a, a real behavior problem. So we came in and simply assessed his reading skills with the CBA ID, as I just described, and it was less than 93%. So we pre-taught him skills, pre-taught him words, I'm sorry, pre-taught him words, and then observed his effect, the effect on classroom behavior. So this is time on task. Baseline is just, they just, we just observed him during reading instruction. This is the condition in which we pre-taught beforehand. You can see his time on task went up to about 75%. Now, um, the next guy, Christopher, I won't show you for time's sake, was a kindergartner diagnosed as EBD. Now, to be kind of blunt, you know, that's pretty insane to think of a kindergartner diagnosed EBD. He was pretty off the wall. Again, came in and pre-taught. But now we're pre-teaching things like letter sounds and letter names, etc. And um, you can see then we got his on time on task 75% of the time. So for a kindergartner to be on task 60, 70, 80% of the time, we're pretty happy. But a kindergartner diagnosed as EBD is, you know, is, is pretty awesome. We're pretty excited about that. So much of the research I do involves pre-teaching. And same thing for math. If we find a good level which to work, we might come in and pre-teach the math skills for the kid, et cetera. Um, for, we also will look and see. Maybe I should stop here for a second. Are there other questions about this before I move forward? I'm just absorbing it all. <laughs> yeah, we had we had a comment that one of our viewers is taking notes, so please continue. Okay. <laughs> we have our pens ready. Okay. 
that's what's great about this is they can. I know I talk fast and I get excited and that makes it worse. Um, so they can go back and watch it again. But yeah. I'll, we'll try and go slowly. So there's other one other way I want to show you that I use the data, and I'm gonna come back to my to the little guy I was talking about a minute ago, which is right here. Oh, I can't show it to you the cool way I show it to you. Oh well. So this is that little guy in third grade again. And you're, you're going to see the punchline because I can't show it to you in, in the full screen view. Remember, this little guy was getting repeated reading, and it wasn't working. Okay. So we came in and said, you know what, let's look at his accuracy. Now, it's hard to see here, but generally speaking, with one exception, well, two exceptions, maybe, it was just below 93% for this guy. So we said, you know, let's try something for the heck of it. Let's stop this intervention right here. And now let's do supported close. Oh, you know, don't call it supported close. When I did this, when I started doing this work, it was we called it supported close, but that's suddenly suddenly become something different now. Um, if you search or Google duet reading, that was the Minnesota Reading Corps. They used this intervention a lot. They started calling it duet reading, which is a cool, a cool term. I like that. Um, it's called other things, other places. But if you Google, uh, well, if you Google duet reading, and if you Google supported close. I have a video on YouTube that shows how to do this intervention. But it's a heavily modeling intervention, heavy modeling. So what we do is we, we come in and the kid and the interventionist read every other word. The kid reads it first, and then we do any correcting errors. Then they read every other word, and then they switch. And so the person who read first now reads second, and they read it every, every other word again. Mm -hmm. so heavy modeling is to help the kids who have good decoding skills, but for whatever reason don't read accurately. Uh, it's to help those kids. It's a small number of kids for whom it's the appropriate intervention, but if it's the one, if it's the right intervention, it's it's a really good one to use. So our conclusion was this little guy was reading not accurately enough. Let's stop repeated reading and do this duet reading supported close where we read with him and have him read every other word, so we're heavy modeling. Once we got him consistently over 93%, then we switched back to repeated reading. And now, again, it's hard to, note, hard to see here, but his, look at his rate of growth here compared to here, even though it's the same intervention. I'll show you one more quick example of that. Yeah. And you can with Google, even though you can't be full screen, you can um, scroll through your slides, you know, the same. Oh, I can? And you'll see that? Yeah, yeah. It just it can't be the full screen, otherwise it'll freeze up. But yeah, you can you can toggle down between slides. You don't have to keep going back and forth. Does that help? All right, that might. Let's try it. Oh, okay. And we got a comment, Rebecca? We do. Um, one of the viewers said those were remarkable results. And David Kilpatrick also writes about similar success with effective reading interventions and students being unnecessarily identified as LD. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, he and I have very similar approaches. Mm. Uh, I use a very specific assessment model that's different than what he does. But other than that, our, our approaches are very, are very similar. Uh, so I'm glad, to he, glad that who, this person uh, shared that. Eric. Great. So here's another little guy, third grade, same thing, repeated reading. Now, not having success, but unfortunately, this little guy's reading, you know, 80 to 85 percent. I guess the highest one's 86 percent of the words correctly. And we said, you know, stop that. That's that's you're torturing this poor kid. So we did support, did do our reading and get him accurate and switch back to repeated reading. Look at his rate of growth there compared to there. Yeah. And then, can you, do you see the third kid now, Eric? Did the, did the screen no, it says Ryan still. Okay. 
That's hmm. I remember that before. I had to do it this way before. That's that's all right. It'll take just a second. One more kid, real quickly. Then, since I mentioned him, Eric, same kind of thing. This this time they did repeated reading for a long time. It wasn't working, and they were optimistic because he started off and then kind of tapered off. And I said, okay, so stop that. Let's do supported close. We got him accurate really quickly, and look at his rate of growth there compared to there. Same intervention. Mm -hmm. so Curriculum-based assessment for instructional design can help you decide what interventions to use. It can help decide between repeated reading or other fluency interventions that focus on accuracy like this one, uh, supported close. It can help you decide if you should use different instructional material or if you should pre-teach, etc. Uh, it can do it can do all of that. So you can see it's it's useful to determine what to do, but again, I, I but it's only useful oops, I'm sorry, it's only useful for that purpose. So in other words, I don't you'll notice that all these studies I use, I use curriculum based measurement to monitor progress. Mm -hmm. um, so I I uh, uh, they're very, you know, they're two two assessment models that are from the same kind of idea, same kind of thinking, but serve very different purposes. Um, questions about that? Should I stop for a second on that? No. no? I, I think I mean it's. I never even thought about like the, this. That's really kind of yeah powerful to show the switching between the two interventions. That at, at one point that this one isn't super effective, and then you you know. Um, fill in some of those gaps and then can go back and, and it's interesting. <laughs> cool. And, and by the way, that's what teachers don't know how to do. So a teacher might know, hey, I'm doing, I know how to do uh, repeated reading and that's a really evidence-based intervention. But what they don't know is for whom is this the appropriate intervention. And so they might try it for a lot of kids and it only works for, for maybe most of them but not all of them. So I can come in in three minutes, decide what this kid probably needs. And I had a laugh. I was just reading the communique beforehand, and there was an, uh, I think it was an ad, actually, about the Woodcock Johnson, and it said, you know, you can determine what a kid needs in only an hour. <laughs> well, that's good. That's a step in the right direction, but I think I can figure out with pretty good accuracy, usually, in about three to five minutes uh, with the kid. And I see um, someone just mentioned Ed Shapiro's book, RTI Approach to Evaluating Learning Disabilities. Uh, Joe Kovaleski, I believe, is the lead author on that, Ed, and then Amanda Vander Hayden. It's really good. Highly recommend it. Even in states where they're not really using RTI per se for LD identification, it's a really good book about LD identification period. So I, I will plug that for them. It's, it's really a good book. So let me kind of, only got a couple minutes left. Um, uh, I want, I'm really anxious, uh, excited to come have this conversation because I felt like for the past year or so I've been telling people, well, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And my advisor once told me very wisely, never tell a person doing something wrong, show them how to do it right. Mm -hmm. And so I really want, I'm really thankful for the opportunity to come and, and say, no, this is how we do it right. Uh, and, and if we take a systematic, systemic, ecological approach, and the reason I think we have to do that is because we're the only ones who will. School psychologists are the only ones trained in the schools as a field in an ecological approach. Uh, now, some social work, I believe, has moved to that a little bit. Some are starting to move that direction, but as a field, we're still the one that takes an ecological perspective. And given that we, there are other mental health professionals in the school, I think it's wise for us to help kids and to support our field, for lack of a better term, um, to, to do that, to provide that ecological perspective because it's unique to us and it can help kids. And I'll show you
real briefly, I've, many of you probably seen this data before. I published this in School Psych Forum a few years ago. Um, but this is the data from when I was a school psychologist. My first ever year as a school, this is the number of, of special ed evaluations I did. I was a practitioner for six years. The first school that I worked, I did 125 assessments that first year. IQ, the whole nine yards, achievement tests, and I loved it. When you first leave, the you know, first go out working, it's kind of scary, and you know, you go consult with teachers, and that's always a little anxious. Or I could take this cute little kid, take him in a closet, just the two of us, our testing closet, and, um, and do a test to which I was trained to automaticity, right? I know how to do that. So I did a lot of that. I finished my caseload my first year, went to my director of special ed, and asked for more. I was so excited by this. Well, maybe went through my I switched districts. I went from one school to the next district. And then started up again, loved it. About midway through my second year as a practitioner, first year in this district, it got a little frustrating because I started realizing I'm not really helping kids. Mm -hmm. So I started doing things like screening, like problem-solving teams, et cetera. And within one year, my evals went down to about 80. And then I switched districts again. I moved around a lot. So same thing first year. Now I'm trying to get things up and running. It took a while. The second year, we got screening, problem-solving, lots of CBA ID work, got down to 80 again. And then the next year I stayed there for another year, I got that number down to about 50 a year. Now, I was working really hard these first two, you know, this first year here both times. I'm not going to lie, it was a lot of work. But I was able to get this down to about 45, 50 cases a year of, of not even, these are all my evaluations, three-year reevals and initials. But I was, still do, I was still working like crazy, doing interventions with individual kids. I was doing uh, group work, of course, group meaning classroom based reading interventions, small group reading interventions, and every Friday uh, I ran, ran social skills and other types of groups all day. So it was, it was great. It was, it's what I think people go into school psychology to do. So that final year in that last district there was, as a practitioner, just an amazing year. It was so much fun. I really enjoyed it because I was able to do some things I wanted to do because I took some of these things we talked about, I brought the ecological perspective, and we prevented problems, and we remediated them quickly. And, and keep in mind, I didn't work in A1 district for three years, or more than three years. I, I didn't get to experience the reduction in three-year re-evals. Those are mostly just reductions in, in initials. So I'll end there. Um, the, in the PowerPoint are some other studies I've done. Um, I, I've done a lot of work with informal reading inventories. When you're instructional level, several of you out there will, will probably think, well, my teachers assessed for instructional level with the DRA, with the font Spinel, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I've done several studies looking at those. And real briefly, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the punchline. We found that they have horrible diagnostic accuracy. The diagnostic accuracy is about 54%. This was an article I published in Reading Writing Quarterly. And if you hear 54%, your immediate thought should be, well, don't give them a test. Just give each teacher a quarter. Every time a kid walks in, flip it, and you'll get it right just as often. That was one. We did a study we looked at, does it add any variance to state test scores, et cetera. We found that it did not. And then lastly, most importantly, among the kids who struggled, if, if I'll use the Fontes Pinnell language, if Fontes Pinnell said their instructional level was an M, and we gave them an M book to read, among the good readers, they tended to read with 98, 99, 100% accuracy. So we may have actually been underestimating their skills, we don't know. 
But mm-hmm. on the struggling readers, um, I believe it was two-thirds. I'm looking right here to make sure I have that right. Among the struggling readers, well, yeah, about two-thirds, almost two-thirds, just under two-thirds of the kids read with very low accuracy. So the book, the test says they're a D, whatever, and so they're reading from a D, and they didn't read it with 93% accuracy two-thirds of the time. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the kids who, for whom this type of work is really important, it didn't, it didn't work. It didn't meet their needs. Uh, because they we were they were still reading material that was too hard, and those are the kids whom it's most important that we get it right. Mm-hmm. So again, if I have a kid and they're doing some leveling work and it's not you know Ponsipanel DRA, not seeing results, I will probably sit down, have them read from their level, see if they read 92% of the words, and if not, I'm going to move them down a level to see if that if that helps. Now I'll, I didn't do that follow-up study, but I'll predict that it will. All of those studies I just mentioned are all published. If you're interested, email me at, at I think it's in my out somewhere, email me at, at burnsmk at missouri.edu or tweet me at burnsmk1 and, and I'll happily send you any of the articles to show you the data for which I talked about today. So, thank you. Thank you so much. I want to make sure that we get to plug your books. Matt, could you go to that last slide in your presentation with all the pictures of all the books you've been involved in writing? <laughs> um, and I, have to, I just have to make one more comment. That was the, the graph of the avails, you know, over 100, 120 avails starting out, and then by year three, I don't know, it looked like it was around 50 or so. That was so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? That was, that was inspiring, you know what I mean? Like, I would imagine that that you probably didn't bring as much work home on the year three, just a guess. That's, yes, years one and two, I was writing reports at home almost every night. I'm, I'm not going to lie, it was a ton of work. But you're right, in year three, it was, it was, I was exhausted at the end of the day, but I was able to not take as much of it home with me, which was quite great. Yeah, that is great. I appreciate it. Well, you must have had just a, a little bit of autonomy in your building to be able to get a referral and say, let me try something for Yeah. yeah. Rebecca, that's a really good point. Mm-hmm. That second school was a rural school um, for whom the director of special ed, the special ed administrator was a principal who freely admitted she didn't know much about special ed. And so she let me have really pretty dramatic rain. It was pretty awesome. I, I did whatever the heck I wanted to. And we were able to get screening up and running and all that stuff because of that. However, that third school was a very, was a affluent, traditional, litigious school district. Wow. It took a lot more. I was, I met with, let me put it this way, I collected my dis- dissertation data in that school. I had to meet with a lawyer three times before I could do that. So, <laughs> Well, that took a lot more work to get them on board with that, but but um, so the point there is, you were right, Rebecca. That year two, I was I got I could do whatever the heck I wanted to. Year three, that wasn't the case, but because I had those data to show them, they were, they gave me a little bit of flexibility to try some things out. Okay. So yeah, I appreciate. It. Let me plug my books. Oh, did I share this? I didn't. Hold on. Let me share this. Mm-hmm. Go away. Um, so I got a bunch of books on, on RTI and stuff. The one I talked about from today is this, Curriculum Made Successful for Instructional Design. Myself and David Parker, former student of mine, he's, he brought the writing expertise to the book, so he wrote quite a bit about the writing. And then, you know, I got the Handbook of RTI. That's, that's a great book. just came out. It's super expensive. It's, it's a textbook. It's every major implementation site in the country wrote us an article, a chapter. They have data to support it. It's really cool. But the implementation ones is this one by Routledge, which is all about how to do RTI, step one, step two, step three, me and Kim Gibbons from SCRED. 
St. Croix River Education District. And then this is the application. This one's one of my favorites. This is interventions. Just what data to look at, decide what intervention to use, turn to that chapter. Here's a bunch of scripts. I'll show you those interventions that match it. Myself, Chris Riley Tillman, and Amanda Vanderheden. So I appreciate it. Let me, let me plug that. That was nice. I, th I, think, uh, <laughs> I think everyone needs. <laughs> I like the, the one with the, <laughs> the scripts and, yeah. and whatnot, like a go to. <laughs> yeah. I, when I write books, um, I really like. I write for practitioners. It's like, you know, just. Oops, Matt, you're crushing. No, and I know we we have to be respectful of his time. I know he's got to run. Um, maybe he'll pop back in and say goodbye. But that was such a helpful um, discussion. That was. And I, I want to mention, too, to everyone out there, I put links in the comments on the School Psych podcast page. Oh, there you are. Sorry. That's <laughs> okay. Um, well, we, we want to be really respectful of your time. We know that you have something to catch um, coming up shortly. So thank you so much for being here and for sharing all this with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I think this is a great resource. Thank you. Right. And then just really quick, everybody, um, I think June 5th we've got something scheduled with um, a school psychologist who is also you know, a licensed psychologist and a hearing officer who's going to give us a legal perspective on emotional disability. Um, and then we've got some other things kind of in the works coming up, so we'll be posting about that. But thanks, you. Uh, thank you, everybody. <laughs> Good night, everybody.